Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. For the past three years, the Canadian government has been transforming and modernizing the way Canadian public servants are learning in the workplace. I'm thrilled to have on this episode the individual leading this change to discuss learning in the government context and how to modernize a learning organization that serves a massive and diverse workforce. Taiki Serentakis is the president of the Canada School of Public Service. The Canada School of Public Service leads the Canadian government's enterprise-wide approach to learning by providing a common standardized curriculum that supports public servants through key career transitions, ensuring that they are equipped to serve Canadians with excellence. Since Taiki's appointment to this role in 2018, he has transformed and modernized this learning organization. Among his many achievements in his career, in 2011, he was awarded Canada's Public Service Award of Excellence in Public Policy, and in 2013, he was a recipient of the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. Thank you very much, Taiki, for joining me today. My pleasure. Mary, thank you for welcoming me. So to start off, for those who are not familiar with the Canada School of Public Service, can you please give a little bit of an overview of the school that you're leading? Sure, thanks. So the school, it is the government of Canada's kind of in-house mini university, in-house mini training facility. And what the school does is it provides kind of things that are a little bit common to public servants across Canada in terms of training and learning opportunities. It does not teach you how to be an auditor. It does not teach you how to be a food inspector. It does not teach you how to be health regulator because those are all very departmental specific. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are things that departments do for their employees. But we do kind of common training that is relevant to you as a public servant, regardless of whether you work at ISED or Natural Resources or Transport Canada. So what would you say is the ultimate goal of the Canada School of Public Service? So my ultimate goal as kind of the current head of the institution is to help prepare the public servants of today for the public service of tomorrow. And what I mean by that is we have to constantly keep upgrading our skills and our tools and our mindsets to meet evolving challenges. And one of the issues that we've had, I think, in the government, at least since I've been in the government for almost a quarter century now, is we kind of think that we solve a problem and then we move on to the next problem. And it's like, oh, we're done. We've solved that. As we go forward, the world is less likely to work like that. And what I mean by that is problems come back and problems come back differently and problems are something that will always be with us. Mm -hmm. And we have to make sure that whatever challenges we're facing in the era in which fortunate enough to be public servants facing those challenges, 
that we have the right tools and the right skills and the, the right mindsets to meet those challenges. Absolutely. Extremely important work and very complex in a government that has so many different disciplines and so many different types of jobs are being done. Yeah. Well, can I maybe just give like a little illustration of what I meant by Please. that? Please. Yes. So when I started in the government in 1997, the I was in a, a little cubicle on uh, the 27th floor at Transport Canada and they had just brought in these new things called computers. They were huge and clunky and state-of-the-art for the time. But the people on the cubicle to the left of me and the people to the cubicle to the right of me, they didn't know how to use the computers. They were just learning how to use the computers. And for them, computers were typing converted to a word processor or doing a math table converted to Excel. So they were learning how to use those new tools. And fast forward within the course of a same career, and now civil servants in Canada and the federal public service, they have to grapple with data, mounds of data, real-time data. They have to grapple with what's going to be the ethical framework for artificial intelligence. What are going to be the standards for how we release IoT data from your refrigerator or your stove or your vacuum cleaner out into the world? How are we going to protect Canadians from all of those things? So, you know, if I just had the skills that I had when I came into the government 23, 24 years ago, I wouldn't be able to help in any way. I'd still be employed. I would still have a job. I would still have a paycheck. But my tool set and my skill set wouldn't allow me to make any meaningful contributions. Absolutely. It's such a perfect example of the fact that the world is changing so quickly. And unless you're a learner, then you can't really be doing your job anymore because your job is changing and the world is changing very, very quickly. Puts it into perspective for sure, that example. Yeah. And that's that's true even if your position stays the same. That's yes. true even if your title stays the same. Mm -hmm. That's true even if you work in the same company. So you can have the same title, the same position in the same company, but five years from now, your job will be very different than what it was five years ago. Absolutely. That's a hugely important point for everybody to come away with. And since you became president of the Canada School of Public Service, you really have transformed it into a very vibrant learning organization that provides very popular learning experiences across the government sectors, as you've described. So what do you think is key to creating this kind of learning institution? What are some of the key principles? Well, first of all, we kind of had to go back to the first principles, which is the kind of the, the what are we, uh, what's our purpose. Mm -hmm. And when I got to the school a couple of years ago, it became pretty clear to me pretty quickly that the school was a training institution. What I mean by that is it taught you how to do your current job better. So if you're in HR, if you're in finance, if you're in procurement, it kind of focused on how do you become a better administrative assistant one level higher? How do you become a better project manager? But the things that you're doing now. So it really focused on training for what you are today. And what myself and a few others on our new management team kind of wanted to shift the focus to was to take that and then add a second tier to that, which was learning. 
A lot of people don't make a distinction between learning and training. But for us at the school, that's a key distinction. And the way we kind of summarize it is that training is for your current job and learning is for your next job. We really want to focus on your learning because people are more interested kind of in learning new skills and preparing for the future than they are in their current job. Now, there are problems with that too, because we're not saying that you don't need training for your current job. In fact, if you can't do your current job well, you shouldn't be kind of learning, so to yes, speak. You should exactly. be back in the kind of the, the training world, which is like learning the mechanics of your job. But once you've learned what your job is about, then you have to kind of learn what you need to either stay current or fluent in that job as it evolves or to prepare yourself for your next job. But even again, even if you never change jobs or positions or departments, your job will continue to evolve. And so you have to keep learning. Absolutely. That is really, really important. So what are some of your key strategies at the core of creating this type of successful learning institution? You took over the school. As you said, you needed to look at the key principles and really focus in on, on the essence of what you, what you wanted to keep and what you wanted to change. So what were some of your strategies? Well, a few things. So number one was hire good people. And that's an important lesson for anybody that's involved uh, in an organization. Hire good people. And if you hire good people, you have already kind of got, you know, 70, 80, 90% of the way there. We did an event uh, early in our tenure where we kind of looked back on the public services reaction or coping with the financial crisis of about a decade ago. And I asked uh, Richard Discerny, who was the deputy minister of then Industry Canada, how do you cope with crisis? He said something to the effect of the best way to deal with a crisis is to have a good management team in place before you have a crisis. If you have a bad management team when a crisis comes, you're in a lot of trouble. So yeah. kind of number one was hire good people, have a good management team. And we've been very lucky that we've been able to attract and retain a very, very high level management team. The second guiding principle was that content is king. So at the school now, we regularly have meetings with vice presidents and directors general and myself about content, mm -hmm. which is to say the product that we're in, which is learning and training, that's what our management team is obsessed about. In other iterations, Content could be something that's left to the, you know, the quote unquote specialists who farm it down and who farm it down and who farm it down. We actually consciously decided to bring it up. We wanted our management team to be constantly obsessed with what are we teaching? Who are we teaching it to? How are we teaching it? What are we teaching? Are we teaching it well? Are HR specialists, is this resonating with them? Are, uh, you know, is this working for executives? And so the fact that we constantly talk about these things at the management table and we guide our business through content, I think really changes the focus. Because when you're talking about content, uh, whether you're a university or a school board or a school or the Canada School of Public Service, you are focused on what the people that come through the doors of your institution or your virtual doors these mm -hmm. days, that's what they're coming for. Yes. Uh, and then the, kind of the third thing I would say 
is we also made a bit of a conscious decision that learning and training shouldn't be boring. So the way that you communicate information and facts and concepts, it really shouldn't be a torture session for the learner. It Mm -hmm. really shouldn't be, here's your spinach, swallow your spinach, and uh, we'll let you go in uh, 10 minutes and, and go away. So we're really guided by the fact that, you know, what we put forward, it has to be compelling, it has to be interesting. And it has to speak to people. There are a multiplicity of ways through which you speak to people. You speak to them through the type of content that you're putting out. You speak to them to like how you're teaching that content. Mm -hmm. You know, is it in video form? Is it, are you asking somebody to read a 300 page book? Is it a, is it a presentation deck, et cetera? So We wanted it to be not boring. The people that come to our institution, they have day jobs. Uh, They have very important and very heavy day jobs. The best way for somebody to consume information is to be engaged with that information. And you can't be engaged with information if you're bored out of your mind. No, it's so true. I mean, you have to capture people and make sure that it resonates in order for them to be able to learn something from the great material. But the knowledge itself that you're trying to teach has to really be engaging so that people can absorb it, which is such an important thing. Those are all really important points. And so leading in the recreation of the school What were some of your influences, any ideas or organizations that influenced you in the way that you designed CSPS? You know, that's a great question. Um, I I don't know how many people in your audience kind of listen from the government of Canada or outside the government of Canada, but within the government of Canada, and I think this is kind of true within most governments, we tend to benchmark ourselves against other organizations within the government. What I really wanted to do was I wanted to benchmark us from outside of the government of Canada. So I would constantly say to people, and this would drive them crazy in the early days, I would say, you know, why do I have to fill out this form when I want to take a course? Uh, Why can't I just click once after I've done this information? Or why can't I have this on demand? when I want to, as opposed to when you want to, or why is our learning platform GC campus so difficult to navigate? So clunky, so slow in all of those answers, I would get something back like, well, you know, this is the best registration system in the government of Canada, or this is the best learning platform that the government of Canada has. There's not a better one. This is the best, this, this is the best that. And I kind of said, let's do better than that. Let's compare ourselves not with fellow department down the street. Let's compare how we register people with how Amazon registers people or how Netflix registers people or how my dentist registers people or how my optometrist sends out reminders for my appointments. Once we kind of got into that mindset, then people started going, oh, I get it. I can't be Amazon because I don't have 18 gazillion dollars, <laughs> but at the same time, 
my dentist only has like three employees. I've got more than three employees in my unit. If my dentist can figure out a way to manage my appointments and to send me emails and reminders, uh, you know, I should be able to do that too in my registration system. That's really important. That is such a key thing to look outside because in any organization and in any field and any everywhere, you can so quickly and easily get siloed into what is happening in that realm. But having that culture and for you to lead by example, that the culture is really about looking outside. And as you said, you can't be and you don't want to be some other organization, but that doesn't mean you can't have good practices or ideas from those. So that's a really fantastic thing to build into the culture. Do you find that it's quickly become an integrated part of a conversations that are being had? Yeah, we're, we're certainly there now as a mentality. We're mm-hmm. not quite there in terms of execution. We still have that clunky learning system that I talked about. But uh, a year ago, we went into a procurement process and our new learning system at some point during 2021, when we unveil it, it's going to be state of the art. It is cloud-based. It will feel like you're on a 2021 platform rather than a kind of a 1979 interface. So Mm. I think we're there mentality-wise. We still have a lot of work to go in execution, but you're never going to get to the execution until you have the mentality, until you have the focus. So that's kind of step one. Step two is just doing it. And then step three is doing it well. And then step four is doing it well every day. You know, everybody in the world has great ideas, like I have 30 great ideas every day. But, you know, I didn't create Uber, uh, even though I had thought about it years ago. I didn't create Amazon, even though I clearly remember going, well, why can't I just order this on the internet? And I didn't create <laughs> Netflix when, you know, one day I was like, why do I have to watch this at seven o'clock every Friday? Why can't I just watch it whenever I want? And the reason why I had all these great ideas, but I didn't do anything about them was because I didn't execute. I didn't go forward and do the grind of like Jeff Bezos did of quitting his job, moving across the country, mortgaging his house and starting to execute on his ideas. So Mm. we all have these great ideas and the government of Canada is filled with great ideas. Like, wouldn't it be great if we had a system where, you know, we centralized travel and wouldn't it be great if instead of every department having its own payroll system, we had one payroll system for everybody and, 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 and those Mm -hmm. are all great ideas, but it's not just about the idea. It's about the execution of the idea and a great idea with bad execution is actually a formula for disaster. Yes, absolutely. The detail of the actual implementation of a wonderful plan is where things can become really disastrous. So the execution is extremely important. The other thing I tell my management team, and they do it automatically now, but at the beginning we didn't. The other thing I, I do with them is I like register for one of our courses. Try Mm -hmm. signing up for an event. And then kind of as they, in the early days, as they were going through it, they were like, oh my God, it's really hard to register for (laughs) one of our events. Oh my God, I don't know what my password is. Uh, Oh, I registered for this event, but I never went to it because nobody reminded me. Or I, I registered to this event and I never got to it because 
I didn't get an automatic link on my calendar. Mm -hmm. And so once you start to think like the people that are using your services, then automatically you start seeing all these things that are pain points. Mm -hmm. I'm actually amazed at how few times people in the government or in, in governments in general kind of use their own services to see what it's like. I always imagine somebody, not to pick on, you know, the Department of Transportation, but that's kind of the classic, you know, your driver's license or your healthcare card in a province. And it's like, you know, have you ever tried to get a driver's license? Like, do you know how hard it is? I, like, and this really hit home to me in uh, about eight or nine years ago, my father passed away. And I was responsible for kind of doing the paperwork associated with my father's death. And I had to interact with, you know, the city of Brampton and the province of Ontario and the government of Canada. And each of those interactions was horrific. It was terrible. It was like, here I am dealing with this major life event, like the, the loss of this person that I loved more than life itself. And at every stage, I was like, fill out this form, fill it out again. Mm. And I was like, well, how many different times do you want me to tell you my father's name? Mm. How many different times are you going to ask for an original death certificate? How many different departments within the government of Ontario do I have to tell that my father died? Mm. Like, really? Yeah. And That's so... Really I think if, if senior executives in the government of Canada, I don't mean deputy ministers, I mean, and, but I mean them too, but, you know, ADMs and directors, generals and directors, if people tried to use some of those services, they would kind of see how long it takes to get an answer from department A and how long it takes from, to get an answer from department B. And you almost have to kind of play a little bit undercover boss. Yeah. And when you do that, you kind of see the experiences that people are having. And that helps you kind of get a sense of what's working well in your organization and what isn't. And if you're just sitting in your office as a DG or a director or an ADM or a deputy minister, and you just kind of look down on the floors below you, whatever floors they are, and say, how are we doing? And everybody kind of looks up and says, oh, we're doing great. And you're like, that's terrific. I, you know, yeah. we're doing great. That's not going to work. Absolutely. It's important to step back and to put live the shoes of the learner of the client to see what that experience really is, because you can never yeah. really replace that by or knowing. Or the shopper it, or the patient exactly. or the, yeah. like, we all sit in dentist chairs. Mm -hmm. We all go to optometrists. We mm -hmm. all you know, go to physiotherapy, we all go to a hospital, we all yeah. went to school, we all went to universities, and we have good experiences and bad experiences. And exactly. the good experiences come from the fact that people are thoughtfully designing a service and an interaction and an experience for you. Mm -hmm. And the bad experiences are when it's quite clear that either people don't care, mm -hmm. or that people didn't really think about, you know, how you get a driver's license, or yeah. how... You know, you have to find a fax machine to tell somebody that your father died. Absolutely. Oh, very, very important point. Thank you. So one of the great challenges of modernizing government institutions like other major organizations is that it is a complex system with a long history and that you can't build it from scratch. 
So you already have something that you're inheriting. So what has been most challenging about the transforming of an organization? Did you find most difficult about that? That's a, that's a great question. And it's a, it's an important point for your um, kind of listeners to internalize because Mm -hmm. it's not an accident that, you know, one of the three major networks didn't create Netflix and it's not an accident that Amazon didn't create online shopping and it's not an accident that Columbia Records didn't create like uh, Spotify. And that's because of legacy. And legacy is very powerful. Legacy is just kind of a bit of a fancy word for saying, this is how we do things. Mm -hmm. This is how we think about things. These are the tools that we have. When you have legacy, that's your biggest challenge. That's Mm. the, the biggest challenge is breaking down the old and starting the new. Now at the Canada School, relatively speaking, I have the most advantages of any of my kind of deputy minister colleagues. Like it's a relatively small organization. It's only about 700 people. It's an organization that isn't responsible for protecting us from viruses. It's not responsible for protecting our food or our borders or giving out old age security checks. So we have less kind of legacy Mm -hmm. than other departments. The other thing is because of that, we have less consequences of failure. Like if somebody at Health Canada makes a mistake, literally somebody could die. At the Canada School, we don't have that problem, thankfully. Yes. And so, you know, nobody dies if we get it wrong. So that's allowed us to kind of try different things until we get it right. I don't want to say we're really smart and we've really done things well. It's actually, you know... We've had the the conditions and the circumstances through which rebuild and rejuvenate an organization that, you know, quite frankly, you could take the same management team with more intelligence and more energy and more vigor and plop them in front of an organization with 20,000 people that was born in 1867 Mm -hmm. or 20,000 people that was born in, you know, 1906. And they just couldn't do it because mm-hmm. it would take them a long, long time and they would all kind of die before they could, they could it's very uh, difficult. climb the mountain. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Mm-hmm. You should always try to make every little part of your organization better because that's the metric against which you should be measured. Not did I create a world-class organization or did I create an Amazon uh, you, because very few people create the Amazon. I think that what happens a lot in a lot of organizations is people kind of compare themselves to perfection mm-hmm. and they kind of say, well, I'm never going to be perfect. So what's the point? That's the exact wrong mindset. That really is dooming your organization to failure automatically. Yeah. And it really requires just different skills. I mean, so often when we're talking about innovative organizations, we're thinking about, as you said, new organizations that were created from scratch. So their model was built up from the very beginning, which is a very different skill set than having a legacy organization that is absolutely massive, or even if it's not, but it's a legacy organization and transforming that is a very different skill set. It is a different skill set, but it is possible. I mean, if you think about 
there are companies that have survived for a mm-hmm. hundred years and not just survived, but they've thrived. Yes. There are industries like agriculture is like thousands of years old. What happens with that is they're constantly reinventing themselves. Mm-hmm. You can't just say, well, you know, I'm in the food business and the food business is pretty simple. You grow something, you harvest it. Mm-hmm. stick it in a box and you give it to people. Those companies die. But people that kind of go, you know what? Food industry is changing. And now the food industry and the agriculture sector, they're one of the most dynamic, data-driven, connected, satellites this, uh, artificial uh, harvesters that. Mm-hmm. Like it is, it can be done. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. What do you think are some of the key things to look at in a legacy organization in order to continuously innovate? What maybe are some of the different ways, different strategies of approach to innovation than a startup that is really coming from from the ground up? Well, this might surprise you, but I actually hate the word innovation. And the reason why I hate the word innovation is because some people take that word and go, we got to be different. We got to change. Whatever we're doing now isn't good enough. To me, instead of thinking about innovation, I think about value add, which is how can we, how can we add more value? How Mm -hmm. can we do this better? And if the answer is we can't, then there's no need to innovate. Yes. But if the answer is we can't, and it's, we can't because you've only compared yourself to something silly, like you've kind of set up a straw man and then won the argument against that, then you're kind of fooling yourself. So to me, I, I look for where can we get better? Where can we add value? Where can we use less resources to get the same outcome? Where can we be more efficient? So to me, those are all more useful ways of looking at it than to say, where can we innovate? Because, you know, quite frankly, there are so many things in my life that work really, really well. I don't want any innovation. Like when I turn the water on, I know that the, <laughs> the right is uh, cold and the left is hot. And, uh, you know, when the light turns green, I know that means go. And when the light turns red, I know that means stop. Like those things work very well. Like leave them alone. There is no need to innovate for the sake of innovating. I I really have no patience for people that say, I had this great new traffic light system. Mm -hmm. It's like 17 colors, multi this, multi that. And you're, and like, I just kind of stop and go, what problem are you trying to solve? And they, and they go, well, it's just better than, than what we have now. And it's like, yeah, but what we have now works and it works really well. So it's, it's not about innovation for me. It's about solving problems and adding value. Yeah, that's a very, very important point to always be careful not to be jumping on the shiny bandwagon because yeah. there's an increasingly more and more shiny bandwagons to jump onto, but then we get drowned by that and and not really get anywhere. So that's a really good point. And in the word, you're right. The word is loaded with the thoughts of something new and it doesn't always have to be new. And you always have to think which parts of the value that we need to add to our lives is it adding and do we need to change it at all or maybe just parts of it. So that's really important. Through this transition over the past approximately three years that you've taken over the Canada School, what surprised you most in this journey of of transforming the school? I really thought it would be done in uh, one year. 
thought the heavy lifting would be done in one year. The heavy lifting wasn't done until kind of the end of more or less year two. Mm -hmm. So kind of the heavy lifting is behind us. So that surprised me that the heavy lifting took longer than I thought. And the other thing that's surprising me is and this shouldn't surprise me and I feel stupid that it surprises me, but it does. There's no destination. There's no kind of point when you're like, oh, I'm done. There is always something to fix. There is mm. always something to get better at. There is always something to like just become more efficient at. Absolutely. And so I read something a couple of days ago. It was like this major profile on Tim Cook, mm-hmm. who's the, the CEO of Apple. And it was talking about how, you know, he's obsessed with the details. He would negotiate contracts and it said down to the fourth decimal to to shave a fraction of a penny off part for the next iPhone. And you're kind of going, wow, this is the CEO of the most valuable corporation in the world. And that corporation today is worth like $2.3 trillion dollars. And he is sweating over a detail like that. Mm. And how many people in the government of Canada or in other organizations, big organizations go, that's not my job. That's for, you know, the little people. That's Mm. for somebody else. Or I'm not going to stress over shaving another quarter of a penny off the cost of my service provision or whatever, you know, whatever your analog happens to be. Like, don't think that there are things that are too trivial for your attention. And don't think that you can start becoming bloated and inefficient and you Mm. have a free ride just because you're the world's most valuable corporation. Like, you have to work and keep working at being the world's most valuable corporation. Absolutely. And it's always in the detail, isn't it? It's always uh, the success is always in the detail. And in fact, measuring success in a learning institution that is continuously improving and continuously changing is quite challenging. So what does success mean to you? How do you define success? Well, there's two different questions there. So I'll tackle them first uh, in order. So measuring success in a learning institution is very difficult because Uh, We are all the products of the learning that we have done throughout the course of our lives. And, you know, you're here today because when you were in grade nine, somebody spoke to you and taught you something. And I'm here today because of some offhand comment that somebody in grade 11 told me. Mm. And those people in grade nine and grade 11, they're never going to know the impact that they had. They will never know. They will never kind of go back and retroactively get credit for, you know, the success that you're having. So that's really hard in an educational context. Mm -hmm. And that kind of leads into kind of part two, which is the, how do you measure success at the school today? So today I measure success in like, you know, are people knocking down the door to get in or people not interested? Are people coming back or Uh, Are they not coming back? Are people logging on and and following us on Twitter to get the next registration for the next course? Or are they not? Are are people calling and saying, where could I see that again? Certainly not scientific. And it's certainly not satisfying from an intellectual perspective. 
where there's a defined set of rules that you benchmark against. It's not like building a, a chair where you say, you know, your competitor makes the exact same chair, but they do it 30% more efficiently than you do. It's more nebulous in, in the education world or in the learning world or in the training world. But a good rule of thumb in our context is, are people coming back? Do people want more? And if people aren't coming back and if people don't want more, that's a pretty good indicator that whatever it is that you're doing, you're not doing it as well as you should be to, for it to speak to people. It's not serving their needs. And yeah, it's a good indicator, definitely, because it is a very complex process, but that's a very good indicator to see if you're providing the right service and the right knowledge that people need in the right way. Another, another way of thinking about this is, would I come here or would I use this if I didn't have to? Mm -hmm. And in government, a lot of what we provide is kind of like a monopoly. You know, the only person that can say, yes, Taiki, your father died, is an organ of the state. Mm -hmm. The only person that can say, yes, Kinga, you can drive a car legally, is an organ of the state by giving mm -hmm. you a piece of paper. And you can't go next door and get like something else from the competing entity. Right. And a good way to think about this is, you know what? if I didn't have to get my driver's license from this place down the street, would I use this place? And if the answer is no, then the people that are providing that service have become kind of reliant on their monopoly. They're only here because you have to use them. In our field, we do not have a monopoly. And I am really glad we don't have a monopoly because if we had a monopoly, we would become lazy and boring. We would shut down pretty quickly. Like we compete with YouTube. We compete with Netflix. We compete, we compete, we, we, we compete, we compete, we compete, we compete. Really what we're competing for isn't dollars. We're competing for people's attention. And so it's like, you know, why would I give you an hour of my attention when I can give it to somebody else? It comes back to what we said at the beginning, which is kind of like you have to be engaging and not boring. And people have to want to kind of want to spend time with you learning something as opposed to it feeling like a punishment. And it, it goes back to what you said as well, where in your organization, people at all levels step into the learner's shoes by taking the courses, by registering for the courses, by seeing what the experience is like, then they can feel for themselves if this is the experience that they would want as well and they would be enjoying. So that's an important way of checking. And so what advice would you give to other governments and other legacy organizations from what you learned about creating an effective learning organizations? What advice would you pass on? From a learning perspective, it really has to be, what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to teach people to be better at what they're doing right now? And if that's the case, focus on that. Mm. If, if you're trying to build for the future, then focus on that. It really comes down to, you know, why are you here? Why do you have access to these, you know, X number of employees and Y number of dollars? Like, mm -hmm. what are you trying to achieve with those things? And it's surprising how many organizations can't answer that question. That question can't be a slogan on the wall that you kind of look up to while you're having your lunch. 
it has to be something that you live. It has to be something that drives how you allocate the resources in your, your organization. It has to be how you allocate dollars and how you spend your personal energy. Yes. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's Jeff Bezos that talks about there are a lot of organizations that kind of lead by slogans. And then there are organizations that lead by doing what they say they're going to do. Anybody can come up with a great slogan. And those words don't mean anything without the associated living those words. Absolutely. Living them, showing the example at every level is, uh, is really, really critical. Looking back now on this journey, is there something that you wish you had known at the beginning? It takes, and this isn't about learning, this is about organizations. When you're transforming something, it takes a lot out of you and Mm. takes a lot out of the thing that you're transforming too, because by definition, you're changing things. And if you're changing things, some people love that you're changing them and some people hate that you're changing them. What I wish... I knew at the beginning was that changes for the good are not automatically welcome. You have Mm -hmm. to explain how they're for the good. You have to show how they're for the good. And you can't just say, well, you know, it's very obvious that if we have a better registration system, we're going to have a better experience with the people that we're serving. And to me, that was very self-evident, but it turns out that it's not self-evident to everybody. And it's kind of like, you know, my doctor telling me, if you eat more vegetables and exercise more, you're going to live longer. And it's very self-evident to the doctor. It's less self-evident to me as I sit on the couch and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. More vegetables, less, more exercise. Oh, I'm good. I get it. But like to the doctor, the doctor kind of looks at me and and he or she is like, how do you not get this? Mm. It takes different levels of engagement to reach different parts of Mm -hmm. uh, things you're trying to change. Absolutely. And, and even just realizing what you said, even though we might know it, but it's so easy to forget it that any type of significant change, even if it's just personal or if it's leading an organization to change, it is hard. It is really hard. And there's a lot of friction regardless. Maybe everyone is on board, but there's still going to be friction because you bump into things that are difficult when you're changing. Yeah, that's a great point too, which Mm -hmm. is even if you've got the 20,000 souls in an organization rowing Mm -hmm. in the same direction and they've bought the same value and they they share the same goal and, and they all with everything they've got are believing in it and working towards it. It's just like you said, it's still going to be hard. There's still going to be friction. Mm. Even if everybody agrees on the vision, even if everybody gives it their all, you know, there are days where it's like, okay, we've been at this 900 times now. How come we can't get (laughs) this right? And everybody's like, I get it, but it's not working. So we have to, you know. Knowing the process is, uh, is, is part of it, realizing it's going to be mm-hmm. harder than you expect, because it always is harder than one expects, regardless of the planning. So what's next for Canada School of Public Service? So we have very, very small dreams that I want to have for as long as uh, I'm here, which is we want to get better every day. We want to get more relevant every day. 
we want to provide more and more with less and less, or if we're given more and more to provide even more and more. So we just want to start becoming quietly excellent and efficient and boring every single day. That's really good. It's very important to do that. Thank you very much for your insights. But before we end, I ask every guest if there's something that you would like to recommend, either something to watch or read that inspires you in this field. Oh, wow. So what a great question. So I read voraciously. I read Mm -hmm. a minimum of 30 books a year, which is actually low. When Bill Clinton was president of the United States, he would read 50 books a year. Uh, Obama would read between 40 and 50 books a year. Bill Gates, when he was running the world's biggest, most profitable corporation, would read, I think, 70 books a year. So all these people that say, oh, I wish I could read, but I'm too busy. It's like, really? You're busier than the president of the United States? Really? You're busier than, you know, the the head of the, the CEO of the biggest corporation in the world? Really? Like, you know, give yourself a little shake. So my, my best advice would be find something that you love, whether that's an author or a magazine or a book series or, and just kind of explore it and digest it. And uh, for me, that's just reading. I love reading about interesting things. So uh, as long as I'm interested in learning, uh, I keep doing it. But, you know, the books that I read are, are not going to be interesting and uh, engaging for all of your listeners. So I really would just recommend just whether it's fishing or, you know, how to raise a dog or, you know, astrophysics, just find something and start reading. And uh, that means that you're, you're bringing something into your mind that isn't there today. Very, very important. And as you said, carving the time out, even though we all have very little time, but it's such an important thing to do and to constantly be learning and having new ideas and bringing new ideas together. Well, Taiki, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I always enjoy talking to you. It's my pleasure, Kinga. And your insights and wisdom in leading such a wonderful organization. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me and uh, all my best.